So our conversation with the kiddos is a way that we begin to hear about and and meditate upon God's word, and we're going to continue to do that this morning with our scripture reading. It comes from John chapter 4. We're actually going to go into the middle of the story. So this is a story known as the woman at the well. You may be familiar with that, but by the point that we start reading today, some things have already happened. Jesus and his friends have decided to go back to Galilee from Judea, and they've stopped in Samaria, and Jesus is at this well where he engages in a conversation with the woman, and the dialogue goes back and forth, and Jesus gets a little bit personal, and this is where we enter the conversation this morning. So hear now the word of God from John chapter 4, verses 16 through 26. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come back. But the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight this morning, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I learned a lot in seminary. You would hope that that would be the case, right? I learned so many things taking those courses, working toward my Master of Divinity. I learned how to read the Bible in new ways. I learned how to connect the dots in church history. I learned how to prepare and deliver a sermon. I learned how to offer pastoral care. I learned how to preside over baptisms and Holy Communion and weddings and funerals. Not a day went by where I wasn't grateful for that education and and for the opportunity to devote some time to learning those things. It wasn't really until 12 years later, in the spring of 2020, that I recognized a gaping hole in that education. No one ever taught me how to make public health decisions. No one ever taught me how to make public health decisions. Now, I know how to make decisions on behalf of a congregation, for sure, but specifically, leading a congregation through a global health crisis was not among the course offerings. Pandemic 101 was not something that I could have 
participated in in seminary. And so in March of 2020, I found myself standing in my bedroom with my phone in one hand and a yellow legal pad in another with all of these notes, having a plan, hatching a plan really, to connect with the church leaders and make some decisions about suspending in-person worship and trying to communicate those to the congregation before Sunday. Many of the congregation members, of course, were not connected to the internet. And oh, by the way, it was Thursday afternoon. So we had to make the decision at that point pretty quickly because we were hoping to avoid making that decision altogether. Now, I feel confident the staff and the leaders of Morningstar have a similar story, even if some of you in the sanctuary don't know those details. Let me assure you that your needs were taken into account in those decisions. Now, I was not a part of those conversations here, of course. At that time, I was serving another congregation. But I know this to be true because this is the nature of any decision about worship. Worship in our tradition is designed to be communal, to be something that we do together in a shared space, in a corporate way. And as such, it is crafted with the entire community in mind. But as you know as well, worship feels very personal, partly because we each have our own preferences about when we worship and where and how. We're talking about everything, from the times of the services to the lighting in the sanctuary to the temperature of the room to the style of the music to the song selection to the number and order of the verses that are sung, the version of the Bible that is read, the kind of seating that we have, the arrangement of the seating, the method of participating in Holy Communion, how often we participate in Holy Communion. And honestly, that is just scratching the surface. So it's perfectly natural for us to have expectations of our worship experience. My point is that many of those expectations begin with our own preferences, and that is okay too. We are allowed to have our preferences of worship. The problem can arise when our preferences become more important to us than the worship itself. And our text for today gives us an example of how divisive our worship preferences can be. Now, many of you have heard this story before. It's commonly called the woman at the well, but it begins with Jesus. And as we said before the scripture reading this morning, today's passage begins in the middle of a conversation. But the story starts with Jesus at a water well in Samaria, thirsty, after beginning a journey from Judea to Galilee. So now is a good time. It worked! (laughs) Now is a good time to get a visual of the lay of the land, quite literally. So you see here, we have Judea to the south and Galilee to the north. Samaria is in the middle. And what was going on here... This is is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So the disciples and Jesus, they have been preaching and teaching and healing and baptizing many people, so many, in fact, that the religious leaders of the day were getting riled up. So Jesus says to his friends, why don't we go back to Galilee for a little bit? And he plots a course with the blue arrows. This is not his map. It's mine. But he plots a course with the blue arrows directly through Samaria. It makes sense, right? It's the fastest route. Presumably, it will take them less time. It will get them to where they are going in a more efficient manner. But the problem is that the Samaritans and the Jews, they did not 
get along. They avoided each other to the point that most Jews would go around Samaria and use the red arrows as um, their navigation system to get to Galilee without going through Samaria. So what was the problem? What was the root of the conflict? What is the source of this cold war? It's the location of worship. I'm not joking. The location of worship. The Jews and the Samaritans, they worshiped the same God. The God of Israel, the God of Jacob, Jacob being the namesake of the well where Jesus was sitting. They worshiped the same God, but they disagreed about where to do that. The Samaritans said that God's presence was located on Mount Gerizim. And the Jews said God's presence was located in the temple in Jerusalem. So they have very clear ideas about where to worship. And they disagreed so much that they decided not to associate with each other at all. So where they believed the presence of God to reside, that was the source of the conflict. And please hear me say that it is okay to prefer a location for worship. We have felt this struggle in a very real way over the last year and a half plus as we have worshipped online in our homes, in parking lots, far apart from each other in sanctuaries. We know what it's like to want to be together and have a preferred location for worship. The preference is never the problem. The problem arises when we place the preference above the purpose of worship. And we don't mean to do this, of course. We never mean to do this. But when our preferences become unbendable expectations, we can find ourselves actually displacing God as the object of our worship. When we become so concerned about our own worship preferences, we can find ourselves at risk of valuing those preferences above the worship of God. I know that sounds serious. That's because it is. And it's the point of the conversation that Jesus had with this woman at the well in the first place. Now, so often we read this story and we think, wow, Jesus is so gracious. We think this is a story about the woman's sinfulness. And we, we applaud his willingness to forgive her. And we put that forgiveness up as an example of the way that we are called to forgive each other when we think we are being sinful. But it didn't happen. Go back and read the story again. Jesus does not forgive her in this exchange. It doesn't happen. Now, I'm not saying that he wouldn't forgive her. I'm not saying she wasn't already forgiven. I'm saying that's not the point of this story. Her her actions were not being berated here as the object of judgment, no matter how sinful others might accuse her of being. We do not know this woman's story. We don't know why she had five husbands. We don't know whether she was widowed or abandoned, leaving her considered to be worthless in her society. We don't know what Jesus thought about her five husbands or about her current life partner. He doesn't say anything about that. He just says he knows that she's had five husbands. And that she's not married to her current partner. He's not sharing the information to condemn her or guilt her into accepting the living water that he offers her a few verses back. He's telling her she is safe with him. She is safe with God. She is loved and worthy of belonging just as she is in that moment, thirsty and all. 
It's the woman who brings up the differences. It's the woman who raises up that mountain between them, pointing to the generational conflict between their people groups. You may be a prophet, she says, in effect. You may be a prophet, but your people and my people, we don't mix. You worship there, we worship here, period. And that's when Jesus tells her she's been missing the point. You worship what you do not know, he says in verse 22. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. It sounds harsh, right? It sounds exclusive even, and it can be read that way. It can be read as a greater division between the Samaritans and the Jews or the Jews and any other people group. And it's been used that way for sure. But it can also be read as a statement of inclusion, including the woman in this idea that God's love is available to her. To her. her her healing is available if we focus on what salvation really means, healing, wholeness. And the story of the Jewish people, it gives us language for this. We talk about deliverance from slavery in Egypt as a metaphor for our deliverance from slavery to sin and death. This is how salvation comes from the Jews. It gives us this common language of being healed. Jesus was not holding the woman captive to any of her life choices, and he wasn't even calling them sinful. He brings them up because he knows that other people are doing that. And this woman in front of him is quite possibly living in shame, piled upon her by other people or even by herself. And he's saying, when you truly know God, you'll realize that healing has been yours all along. Beloved, this is a really important point, and we can miss it if we are not careful. Knowing about God and knowing God are not the same thing. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And that difference is laid bare in our worship. That difference is laid bare in our worship. So to really get to the heart of the matter, let's share a definition of worship. You know, I like to make sure we're on the same page with our vocabulary. To worship is to express reverence or adoration. To express reverence or adoration. And that means that worship is not about us. It's not even about God. It is to God. Our worship is something we do for God out of our love and our gratitude. And certainly worship holds its benefits for us as well. It is a two-way street after all. And it is an opportunity to connect Done authentically, worship invites us to connect with God and with each other. And that is why your Morning Star staff and I spend so much time focusing on the details of our worship together. And we talk about every detail. It's why your worship team, your praise band, spend time during the week practicing every note and every word. It's why members of the congregation show up early to greet you and make sure that the slides are running so that you can be guided through worship in a way that is comfortable for you. We do all of this not to get stuck on our own ways of doing things and not to elevate our own preferences, but to attempt to remove any barriers that you might experience in your worship. To give all of us the opportunity to worship in spirit and in truth. And that's what Jesus said God wants from us. True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. 
for God seeks such as these. That's what Jesus says in verse 23 of our passage for today. And it sounds so beautiful. And obviously it means something for Jesus to speak about worship in this way. And we understand that it's important because we prioritize worship in this community. We order our life together around it every week. It's why we spent so much time and energy trying to make sure that we could worship in some way when the pandemic was at its height and we couldn't gather together safely in the familiar ways. That's the reason I walked around with a phone in one hand and a legal pad in another. I was trying to locate to isolate the spirit and truth of worship and figure out how we could relocate it so that everyone could access it from right where we were. And what I discovered, what we all discovered in that process, is that the spirit and truth of worship is always with us. It's wherever we are because it is in us. Now, that's not earth-shattering news. We knew that all along, but the pandemic became a reminder for us. And that's one of the gifts of this terrible global health situation. The pandemic is putting some things in perspective, isn't it? I'm thrilled to be in the sanctuary with all of you. I am thrilled Preaching to an empty room is not fun, even for an introvert. I am thrilled to be in the sanctuary, and I am thrilled that you online are with us as well. I'm thrilled that we can maintain this online connection so it's there whenever we need it for whatever reason. We have moved a mountain in that way. As we've recognized once more that God's presence cannot be contained in one location or another. And we've also been reminded that worship is not something that we just do on Sunday morning. Again, this is something we already knew. We can go back and look in our Old Testament and all the way through the New. And we see examples of this. One example in the Old Testament is through the prophet Amos when he speaks with the words of God saying, I hate I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. I will not accept your offerings. I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to your music. This is God speaking to people who are worshiping God. And the issue here is that people are offering praises, beautiful worship on Sunday morning and ignoring the needs of the vulnerable among them every other day of the week. The Apostle Paul expands upon this idea that the worship is not just about the state of our hearts on Sunday morning. It's about our whole beings. In the letter to the Romans, in one of the most well-read chapters in the entire Bible, Romans 12, at the very beginning of that passage, he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So in this passage, Paul reminds us that worship is a commitment with our whole self, our bodies, our minds, our souls, our spirits, as we make ourselves available to be transformed by the grace of God. Well, 
pointing to the grace of God is the mission here of Morningstar, pointing to the grace of God that we find in Jesus. And we talked about this at length last week as we launched this series, Envisioning Morningstar. And this week, we've turned our attention to the words of Jesus as we're focusing on part of our vision. It has three parts here, and we're focusing on inspirational worship today. We'll get to the other two in the next two weeks. This morning, we're essentially asking the question, what makes worship inspirational? What makes worship inspirational? Well, fortunately for you, this is something I did learn in seminary, and it's something that you all know as well. What makes worship inspirational? Well, I'll tell you, it's not the music. It's not the congregation. It's not the preaching. And yes, I do know that. I hope that you are inspired by all of those things. We work really hard at all of those things. So I hope that they are inspiring to you. But there's only one answer to that question. What makes worship inspirational? And that answer is God. God makes worship inspirational because God inspires our worship. God inspires our worship. And our worship is not about God. It is to God. It is for God. So if you are feeling less than inspired these days, that's okay. I do not take that personally. But I will invite you, as I am inviting all of us, as I am inviting all of us to consider what barriers might be keeping us from connecting with God and with each other. What mountains are we raising within ourselves that keep us going the long way? around. That was the intent of the conversation with Jesus and the woman at the well. It was also the conversation that he had with the disciples when they returned. And they said, what are you doing talking to that woman? To be satisfied, for our thirst to be quenched, and our hunger to be satiated, we first have to acknowledge our need for water and our need for bread. And we all have those needs, physically and spiritually. And I don't know how those needs are presenting themselves to you right now. But it's worth considering. So that's part of my invitation as well. I hope that all of us this week, perhaps as we pray with and for Morningstar, using this prayer card and this cross, it's my hope that as we do that, we will reflect on our mission and our vision as a community, and we can ask ourselves as individuals a couple of questions. What places of my soul are parched? What nourishment, what nourishment do I need for the next part of my spiritual journey? What places of my soul are parched right now? And what nourishment do I really need to take another step in my spiritual journey? Beloved, I am here to tell you that we absolutely can find the living water and the bread of life in our worship here at Morningstar. I believe that because I trust that we know that God is at work in our worship and we have been set free by the Spirit of God and this truth that we have that God knows us and wants to be known by us. It is in that spirit and in that truth that we can give our thanks and praise. Amen? Amen.